Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 48 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is Glenn Mercer, singer, songwriter, and guitarist for The Feelies. I confess I was especially excited to talk with Mercer because one, The Feelies are one of my favorite bands on record and on stage. And two, if you've seen The Feelies, you've noticed that Mercer doesn't talk much. He's not a verbose lyricist to begin with, and as he stakes out his position on the house left side of the stage, he lets his music do the talking with many guitar tunings in between. So this is a rare opportunity to hear him open up about this mysteriously beautiful, powerful band's creative processes. Mercer and rhythm guitarist Bill Million, who co-writes a lot of the songs, had a distinct vision for this New Jersey-based band. Wanting to sound like no other band playing at CBGB's, they merged the plain spokenness of the Velvet Underground and the Modern Lovers with aspects of African drumming and ambient music and a melodic pop sensibility. From the start, the Feelies intended to dispense with rock band cliches. To Mercer, that meant, in part, singing in a lower register with his voice no more prominent than any other instrument. The Feelies also avoided playing cymbals on the drum kit, opening up the soundstage for everything else, including much added percussion. With their first album, the landmark Crazy Rhythms from 1980, Mercer and Million plus drummer Anton Fear and bassist Keith D'Annunzio created nervous guitar music to live up to the album title. Asserting complete control, they inserted long, quiet stretches and intense buildups, such as the beginnings of Loveless Love and Forces at Work. Then there were the frenzy of Face La and the title track, and a highly caffeinated cover of the Beatles' Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey. Yet there wasn't a second Feelies album with Fear and Denunzio. Why didn't they stick around? A side project called The Tripes included all five members of the next, lasting incarnation of the Feelies. The Feelies lineup for more than 35 years has included drummer Stan Demeski and percussionist Dave Weckerman, with Brenda Sauter providing tuneful, propulsive bass lines, Millions strumming up a storm, and Mercer offering fluid guitar lines that sing. Peter Buck from R.E.M. produced The Good Earth, which came six years after Crazy Rhythms and showcased the band's shift into largely acoustic music that sacrificed no power or velocity. From the opener, On the Roof, It's Irresistible. What was Buck's main contribution? Slipping into Something, that album's epic roller coaster ride, appears in Jonathan Demme's movie Something Wild, and the band also performs as the Willies in the high school reunion scene. How did Demi get in touch with them? How close did the filmmaker get to making a Feelies concert film before directing Talking Heads Stop Making Sense? AM Records signed the Feelies for its next album, Only Life. What does Mercer think was the band's main concession sound-wise to the major label? How did he come up with that indelible guitar solo on higher ground? Time for a Witness from 1991, was the band's attempt to recapture its loud live sound. Like all Feely's albums, it's great driving music. The single sooner or later whizzed past, and the band still played it faster live. Sooner or later, you come around, 
this was not a happy time for the Feelys, and they broke up soon afterward. Mercer explains. He formed a new band, Wake Ulu, with Weckerman on drums. It continued the aggressive approach of Time for Witness, but with a keyboardist, just one drummer, and no second guitarist. Mercer's 2007 solo album, Wheels in Motion, included contributions from just about every past Feely except for Million. Did Mercer ever consider calling it a Feely's album? Million did rejoin for reunion shows in 2008, and the band has been back together ever since. It released its first album in 20 years, Here Before, in 2011. pastoral in between in 2017. On those albums and on stage, the Feelys, who rarely tour beyond driving distance from New Jersey, continue to prove they have not lost a step. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Glenn Mercer. Uh, the last time I saw you uh, was in Jersey City. I think it was November 1st or something like that. Um, I told a friend of mine that uh, when we were out of the pandemic, which obviously we still are not, um, but when we were going back to concerts again, that I was going to fly out to New Jersey from Chicago and see the feelies. And that would be my back from the pandemic, back to seeing live music event, because I couldn't think of any band I wanted to see more while I was in lockdown than the feelies. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. I feel like the feelies are actually like one of the sort of foundational bands in rock and that you guys created a sound that even though, you know, there are traces of other bands that have preceded you, like there are traces of other bands in the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all of these other things that there's a distinct sound to every feelies record that sets it apart from kind of anything else that exists in music. Like, like I will listen to the feelies because I want the feelies, not because I'm in the mood for hard rock or something like that. It's because I want that specific thing. Did you always have in mind that what you were doing was going to be kind of so specific and identifiable as you? Uh, well, it was a goal. Yeah. I remember particularly, uh, I think it was actually before the Feely started or right around that time, there was a festival, a summer festival at CBGB's and uh, ran about a month long, pretty much every night, I think. And uh, probably had about five or six bands each night. So just like a ton of, of music being made. And that was the thing that really hit me the most, like how each band, you know, to stand out, you had to have some kind of unique quality so uh yeah when we first started we were just basically a garage band kind of generic kind of a sound uh with influences you know 60s in particular but uh you know it wasn't until we started two things happened we started to take things out that we felt were really cliche and been done to death and then also accepting influences from beyond traditional kind of rock and roll. So we were listening to like, you know, African drumming uh, records and mm. band music, you know, ambient stuff. 
just what were the things that you took out um well we took out symbols we didn't use a lot of symbols that's kind right. of opened up the space to uh kind of invited uh to use of percussion and you know just uh different sounds to fill up that space what about the cliches well i guess the way i sang you know is not real uh don't project like a typical lead singer would i guess so right you're not the, you're not crooning and you're not sort of you're certainly not a front man who's making you know a show of being a front man right yeah and you know uh singing in a lower register not like trying to stand out above the band kind of integrated more into this whole sound you know nothing really supposed to like be the focal point it's like your attention can drift as the music's going it's sort of meant to uh function as a as a whole rather than the separate parts when you started out being in bands and you had a band the out kids with some future members of the feelies did you see yourself actually as... was in a band prior to that is a couple bands prior to that so it wasn't really when i started but that was the first band to sort of uh again the previous band we did perform for money so we were semi-professional but uh i guess More... the out kids was a when we first started doing originals so what were the first earlier ones called and my, what my question was was whether you always saw yourself as a singer in bands or whether that's something that developed later it just developed yeah when i first started my brother had a band and my friends were in it and uh i didn't play an instrument but i wanted to so i got a guitar and uh it was a really cheap guitar the strings were really far off the neck so i didn't get very far on it and I don't know if I thought of it or somebody suggested, well, why do you try the bass? It's like only four strings. So actually, when I first started, it was the acoustic guitar with a microphone stuck in it, just playing the bottom four strings. Huh. And, uh, you know, like in my neighborhood, everybody played, but there weren't any bass players. So it's like, you know, immediately being able to fit into a band just because I was, you know, something they needed. So, uh did playing bass key you more into the rhythms then? I think so. And I think it also influenced the way I pick. Um, I didn't really analyze my picking style, but one time I happened to like focus in my hand and I realized I was during a lead uh, upstroking actually more than downstroking. I thought, well, huh. most people don't do that. And I thought well, it was probably from when I played the bass, uh, you know, with my, I played both with my fingers and a pick, but typically you're, you're plucking from below, pulling the string up. I think it has a subtle difference in sound as well. Right. At what point did you move to guitar then? Well, actually the band prior to the out kids, uh, we did a few songs. I remember we did like a Woodstock set. Cause that was real big at the time when the album came out. Right. And uh, we did songs by bands that played at Woodstock and we did Pinball Wizard and I figured out the intro. Well, I always kind of picked up guitar along with the bass. My friend had really good uh, guitars. So whenever I went to his house, I'd always play his guitar and I kind of learned from that without actually having a guitar. But then in that band, we did uh, Pinball Wizard and I figured out the intro. So I showed the guitar player and he's like, well, why don't you just play it? So we switched instruments for that. 
And then uh, we did a medley of I'm a Man, Chicago Transit's version. It's got that percussion break. Right. And Soul Sacrifice by Santana, which also has a percussion break. So we'd start with one and then we'd go into a percussion break and all of us would play percussion. And then uh, we would switch and I'd take the guitar and play the Soul Sacrifice. That's when I first started playing lead. So, you know, it was kind of both simultaneous. And then by the time we got to the Owl Kids, I was just playing guitar. Were there guitarists who you were sort of admiring or emulated at that point? Or did, and, and did that sort of change over time? Well, if somebody, if I liked someone, I didn't not ever not like them. So, yeah, but there were definitely guitarists uh, that had big, big influence on me. Pete Townsend, uh, Carlos Santana, Dave Davies, The Beatles, Keith Richards, right. Brian Jones. You know, and then then later on, the Velvets, MC5 were big influence guitar-wise. But uh, Robert Fripp, huge influence. Oh, sure. I can hear that. And only uh, recently did I really think back to how huge of an influence Mick Ronson was. Uh, Dave and I now play in a band. It's a tribute to that period in music. We do a lot of Bowie. And... uh, and I realized, well, you know, this was that was right when I, actually the uh, year that Ziggy Sardust came out was the year I bought my first electric. Oh, wow. So uh, that that record, pretty much everything he did, his work on the Transformer record really impressed me. Phil Manzanero is another one. Yeah, I mean, like some because something in your which is true of Lou Reed and, and a lot of these uh, some of these other guys, too, is that there's no sort of bluesy kind of stuff going on in your your playing and and it's also a very clean tone and you seem very in control of what the tone's going to be and then there's also the rhythm playing which can be very you know aggressive and rhythmic and then the leads have this kind of fluid but not it seems like you're intentionally like not trying to do the kind of bluesy sort of leads there i i just play what pops into my head i don't set out to do any particular thing i think uh you know, what suits the song. I think if you listen to all my playing, it's like really varied. It is. There are like a song like Deep Fascination. It's very kind of bluesy. The good leads. A lot of bending and. Huh. I'll have to think about that because because, yeah, because I love Deep Fascination. And then it goes right into Higher Ground, which has this fantastic guitar solo that just hits all these different tones and and sounds and everything else. And I was going to ask you later, but maybe I'll ask you now just about how you even came up with that and if that's something where you know you're playing it once and you know when you're performing it or something and that's what you come up with or whether it's something that you're actually sort of sitting down and kind of working out bit by bit uh, well it varies for um higher ground i did have a demo um i think it was pretty spontaneous but some things are kind of worked out it's usually about 50 50 on a record things that I work out, things that I just improvise. Yeah. Cause on higher ground, again, you have like these, these low parts of it and these kind of soaring parts and it just, it just hits so many different tones in it. And it's really like, I remember playing that when it, when it came out, uh, you know, and like for a girlfriend and she's like, wow. And then she came back the next day. She's like, I played this for my dad and he thought it was amazing. I'm like, well, good, good. You're turning your dad into a Feelys fan. Well, thanks. 
Um, do you remember the first song that you wrote? Uh, it was a song in the Alkids. I didn't write the uh, vocal, but I wrote the guitar. Did you do the music first and then someone wrote the lyrics on top of it or was it the other way around? It was the music first. Yeah. I actually remember writing the bulk of it without a guitar. I just thought it in my head and remembered it. So. And then you kind of yeah, transcribed yeah. it on the instrument after you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you write like that a lot or do you usually have the instrument with you? Typically it'll be with an instrument, but I do come up with like, if I don't have a guitar, I could, uh, like if I have a melody I want to remember, I could just, I, in my head, know the notes and write them down. And I might make a note of how many beats each note is held. But I can do that without a guitar. Like when I think of a melody in my head, I'll take out like now I used to do it with, you know, some, I used to call my voicemail at work. Then when I had a digital recorder, I do it in that. Now you could do it in a voice memo on the phone, but you're actually writing down what the notes are. Yeah. So, you know, Oh, that's an a sharp and that's a, this and that is that you did you just have perfect pitch that way or did you train yourself to do that uh, it's, yeah it's definitely from training i didn't always have that it's just you know i've been playing music for so long i know what an a sounds like or a c sounds like if i hear a record on the radio a lot of times that's what i'm doing i'm like oh he's playing these chords and i won't have a guitar so i'll just in my head i can hear what an a or a c or a d or an e typically sounds like you know you hear it so much over the course of your right. life that you could recognize it absolutely and when you when you write normally in general do you tend to be a music first versus a lyrics first person Definitely, do they sometimes yeah. come at this no no I always write the music you usually it's the um chord progression rhythm that starts it and then the melody and then the words so you'll come up with a chord progression while you're like with playing on your guitar or just when you're like walking and then you'll figure out what it is and then go back to it. Um, I usually don't think of chord progressions without a guitar melodies. I will, you know, I'm like you said, I might be walking or something in a melody. I, I like to have an activity other than sitting down, working at a melody, right? You want to be doing something and then the melody you know, just keep your mind free so that something could pop into it. It's not a real proactive process. Very passive. I guess the chords kind of suggest the melody. Right. It's almost like I think of it like distilling or sculpting, where you're removing things, revealing things, and, you know, each step will lead you to the next. Now, is it different when you're collaborating with someone? Like if you and Bill Million are writing a song together, is the process similar, but it's two of you, or is there something that each of you brings to the song? Uh, usually the songs we write together, the chords will, or at least the bulk of them will come from Bill. And then there's been some instances where I'll uh, suggest modulating or middle eight break chords for that. There might be a time when, you know, a, a chord might fit better with the melody I had in mind. I'll say, well, can I add this chord here? It really varies. And then will you put the words and melody on top of that? Yeah. Is there anything that you would say, like, are there characteristics that you think distinguish his writing from yours in terms of like musical structure and chord changes and that sort of thing? I think they're pretty similar. 
like we've been the, playing together for so long that we really have a uh, you know they're just very compatible. I'm like I should I'll have to pull out my my credits, but like what would be an example of a song that you think of as sort of a quintessential like Bill song as opposed to one that would be one that you came up with? You know, there were songs that he came up with the chords, and then there'll be a song that I came up with, and they're very similar. So I can't really think. You know, I was going to say maybe major minors but you know he's written a bunch of minor chord songs i've written a bunch of major chord songs can you think of songs he came in with that you were just like oh wow that's that's amazing well he wrote the basic chords to uh raised eyebrows so that, that i really uh you know my contribution was i guess in helping arrange the song and the way i play the guitar and build each section but that's a very kind of Eno, Velvety influence that I've used as well. So I don't know. Right. So in general, were you were you two pretty much, you know, you, you played together and you listened to the same kind of music and like the same kind of music? Like there wasn't the sort of split where like one of you was into Prague and the other one was into something else? Uh, there's probably bands that we each like that the other might not. I don't know. But more of your reference points are common, I would guess, than not common. Yeah, I think. I mean, he's not like, ugh, the Velvet Underground. No, he's, he's <laughs> probably a bigger fan than I am. Um, so Crazy Rhythms, uh, which had raised eyebrows on it, has raised eyebrows on it from 1980. Um, so that's like, a, so it's a different lineup, obviously, from the, the Feelies albums that followed was the process of making that album different from the other ones as well i mean it was the first album that you'd made that record uh it was pretty typical which is basically play the songs live with the idea of getting the bass and drums and then uh i think that after that we might have focused more on keeping more guitar because we had some little bit of difficulty uh replacing guitars or getting the guitars to sound good and you had one drummer on that anton fierce so you hadn't added dave uh as the as the um percussionist on top of it and yet there's obviously a lot of rhythm going on I and mean, the name of the album is crazy rhythms how how much were you kind of thinking about i don't know again that percussive element when you were making that record well a lot there's a ton of percussion on it uh we thought Anton would play the percussion. And when he finished the basic tracks with the drums, he said, see you guys. We're like, well, we're, you're not coming back. And he's like, no, I'm done. So Bill and I played all the percussion. Really? Out of necessity, really. Was that, was that him being done with the album or was that when he was done with the band? That was done with the record, with the album. It kind of hinted at maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Wasn't a team player, to put it that way, maybe? Huh. Yeah, because there's obviously a ton of percussion on it, but I don't think I realized that you guys are the ones playing it. Um, it's just this album that, again, you were you're playing at CBGBs and you know, you're know you part of this sort of, I don't, know, I don't know if it's fair to say scene, but um, that album kind of stands like, like when I heard, I was in college when I heard that for the first time. Um, so it was a few years after it came out. And I was just like, this is just like nothing else again. How in control of that were you and, and, and how important was it for you to also be in control, like not to have like an outside producer putting his imprint on it, 
for you to have like these, you know, long sort of silences between songs and these slow it, it fade was ups. essential. It was totally uh, conceptual in the fact that we had we we had recorded prior to Crazy Rhythms, and uh, actually the Rough Trade single was the first time we worked on our own, and that came out really good. So we were determined to do Crazy Rhythms as well. Uh, we had one experience with a. Uh, producer it didn't go too well so we kind of stuck to our guns and that was part of the the uh deal when we were signing the record uh deal that you know we had interest from other labels but allowed wouldn't allow us to uh produce so i was going to ask whether you had whether you dealt with outside producers if you had a bad experience with that what was that what happened well it really wasn't that horrible uh in retrospect it was uh we did some recording for Orc, Orc Records. He right. put out a lot of New York underground stuff. And uh, the producer said, why don't you guys go to dinner, take a break, I'll do a rough mix. And when we came back, it just sounded so foreign to what kind of heard in our heads. And, um, you know, rather than talk through it we were just like oh no this we hate this this sucks like you know we're gonna do it and you and bill again had you knew exactly both of you what you what you wanted it to sound like no we didn't know exactly what it, we wanted it to sound like we knew exactly what we didn't want it to sound like <laughs> so and then that album came out on stiff records um you know known at the time i think for what you know elvis costello and nick lowe um and those bands uh did that help in any way did it make a difference what label it was on i mean i don't want to sound like i'm complaining uh you know i think it was great that stiff allowed us to make the record and they uh gave us a pretty big budget for it but we always joked that they kind of boasted that they made as much money from selling t-shirts and their merchandising that they did from the records and I think we heard someone say they're like, oh, yeah, we always wanted to sign a band with glasses, you know, like, like, I guess they wanted like a few Elvis Costellos in the same band. Right. Yeah. Not but, that you guys uh, sound anything alike, but. Yeah, they, they really weren't happy with the way it came out, to be honest with you. Was there ever um, going to be another Feelies album with that lineup? We, I guess, hope to do that. We were kind of moving in a different direction. We kind of thought, well, we don't want to do the same thing again. In a way, we had felt a little bit backed into a corner in terms of uh, certain tempo and featuring the percussion. It just seemed like ran the risk of possibly becoming like a formula in a way. And um, I remember the first song that we worked on after Crazy Rhythms was When Company Comes. So it's sort of like kind of new. We were moving away from that sound. And also, right. I think the New York scene was kind of dying down at the time. So we weren't feeling as inspired by what was going on in New York. Started getting into, you know, more underground bands from throughout the country, really. I guess a lot of it was coming from my like college towns. Meat Puppets and Dream Syndicate and Husker Du and Rain Parade and, you know, wasn't New York wasn't the center anymore. Did you feel like your writing was changing as well? I mean, obviously, when Company Comes is a different 
sort of song. Well, that's what I mean. Not. We did. We we, did, we didn't want to repeat ourselves and make crazy rhythms. Volume two. We wanted to be able to explore. You know, we've always been about really experimenting and exploring stuff. That's where the fun is. So how did you end up like losing Anton and, and Keith? Did they leave at the same time or was it just sort of a... No, Anton left first. He had been playing with uh, the Lounge Lizards and uh, he, he really wanted to play a lot and we didn't. You didn't want to like sort of fly over the, all, all, all around the place at that time either. We didn't even want to play in New York a lot. We play a couple times a year. And then, so, so he left and then, and then, then Keith was your, your bassist and he'd been with you for a while. And how did he end up out? And then how did you end up sort of coming up with this new lineup, which like, I have that tripes record. Pretty kind of natural evolution. Um, I guess the feelings kind of went on after Anton left. We just kind of went on a hiatus. We didn't really ever say we were breaking up. We actually, and Anton kind of came back. We did some shows actually with, uh, after Stan joined, we did some shows with both Anton, Stan, and Dave. So it was like three drummers. Wow. But the main thing, I guess, was that I started playing with the local band, the Tripes, and I actually played drums when I first joined up with them. Well, more percussion, really, than drums. It wasn't a full kit. And then we started the Willies, which was like to play more ambient kind of music. Well, I guess first we hooked up with Stan, and then Brenda was friends with John Baumgartner's sister, I think. So we kind of got to know her, and she started playing with the Tripes and the Willies. And uh, we just, I guess, started... You know, again, we didn't want to keep repeating ourselves. So the Willie's ambient stuff took that as far as we could and then started writing songs again. Right. And you had a well, Tripes album, too. But but the Tripes was never going to be the main thing. It was still the feelies was still going to be the main thing and not the Tripes. We didn't really think in terms of main and offshoot, really. That's the way it's kind of perceived in it was that way once the feely started back up but during the hiatus it was never you know a hierarchy of which bands more the most attention right you know we, pre we pretty much did it on a social level just playing with friends really because it wound we've up being never been like really about we've never been good about like forging a career Hmm. And it wound up being like six years between Crazy Rhythms and uh, The Good Earth, uh, which came out in 86. Um, and Peter Buck worked on that. How did you work with him? And how did A, how did you get him involved? And B, sort of what did he what did he do with you guys? while obviously he didn't mess up your sound because that's a great sounding record. Um, well, we actually he he did a little bit of an interview for the reissue and he talks in the booklet that uh you know he admits he didn't do anything <laughs> he, he was basically there just to encourage us uh he didn't want to really get involved with the sound of the band 
he got involved through uh we we started hanging out a lot at this club called maxwell's in hoboken right right that was your became really good friends with the owner and uh he ran coyote records so we got to record for his label and uh he was friends with rem and we were at a party and peter approached me and he said yeah really like crazy rhythms and i heard your guys are going to be doing another record and i'd love to help out you know and the fact that steve introduced us and he was going to put the record out just felt like okay be a good fit i guess did you like what he'd been doing with rem as well yeah oh definitely if we didn't we wouldn't have wanted to work with him Right. I've heard you guys cover Shaking Through, which sounded fantastic. Um, box, box cars. Box cars we as well. That. Right. Yeah. We did that. There was a uh, REM tribute concert at Carnegie Hall that we were uh, very honored to be invited to perform at. And we did the box cars at that. Did REM kind of help things along in other ways too? Because between 80 and 86, this whole college rock thing had kind of become a thing. I mean, not to, not to be totally redundant, but but it seems like, you know, in, in 1980, it was still sort of about like new wave and post-punk. And by 86, you know, R.E.M. had toured and there were all these bands that were sort of considered college rock bands and being played on college rock stations and maybe playing at venues that hadn't been opened up or to that kind of band before. Uh, well, th yeah, they helped quite a bit. They actually took us on tour during their, uh, I think it was the Fables album, perhaps. But uh, 85. They, they, like you said, like you were saying, though, they definitely, I think, helped revitalize music. They helped establish a whole network of clubs in small towns, college towns mostly. But uh, yeah, we always say that when Crazy Rhythms came out, we really, if we wanted to tour, we really, there was no venues other than the major cities. We'd probably have to fly from New York to Chicago and to the West Coast. And, uh, you know, they, from a few years of touring, enabled uh, the scene had changed enough so that when we did our first proper tour in 1984, we were able to go cross country and play all those small towns. I, I love the Good Earth. When the Good Earth came out, I mean, I, I enjoyed Crazy Rhythms too um, and and admired it a lot. And then the Good Earth just sort of grabbed me in this totally different way. And and it's not it's not a different band, but it's definitely a different approach. Um, you know, just like the Velvet Underground's third album is much different from White Lightweight Heat. Uh, were you thinking going into this, we want to do sort of more of a, you know, I mean, again, you have one company comes, which you mentioned, which is just this totally lush acoustic, you know, multi multiple acoustic guitar strumming rhythmic thing. Were you thinking at that time we want to do this kind of almost sort of pastoral acoustic with percussion and some loud guitars on it? Probably even the songs are crazy rhythms may have started out sort of like that anyway. I think when you you're just sitting in your room strumming a guitar like, you know, then maybe they got sped up and the drumming took on a new presence but i think you know basically the folk element was sort of there to beginning as well it wasn't like a conscious effort to like well let's be folkier yeah i don't even think of it as folky because 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 it doesn't it's not like sort of laid back guitar picking sort of thing i mean 
you're playing fast and, and, uh, you know, it makes, it makes you want to jump around, but it makes you want to jump around with acoustic guitars that are very kind of richly textured. And, um, and the rhythm playing is, you know, it, it just has a, has a lot of drive to it. Um, but at the same time, it's not as maybe thorny as some of the stuff on crazy rhythms, even though obviously, uh, slipping into something gets builds to this great crescendo of, you know, feedback and everything else. And, uh, I don't know. It's just it, not it, really it, on it, the record. We do it different live. Oh, sure. Because we, you know, actually hadn't listened to the record in a long time. And I'm always surprised by how different it is. The first time I saw you guys was I was writing for the Boston Phoenix after I was in college and I was living in Boston and and you guys played at I think it was UMass Amherst and I think it was in a cafeteria. And and I just remember the 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 energy level of that show having again listened to to the album of the good earth a lot of times and listen to crazy rhythms but seeing you guys live was this totally other thing um yeah i remember what, that show the thing that i remember most is that for some reason we couldn't get the van anywhere near the cafeteria like we had to unload and we had like huge road cases so we had all these kids like helping out moving these huge road cases halfway across campus and like wow through the building up these stairs down these stairs like just being logistically very weird did you have in mind that you know the the studio versions would be one thing but the live versions would be just something else like it's just a different beast it would be faster louder just different probably on crazy rhythm as we had a little bit of a desire to capture the live show but I think pretty quick we realized that, you know, if, if we got it to sound good, we'd be happy. We didn't really want to, you know, it's just hard enough to get all the instruments recorded properly. And then, uh, you know, that's something that is almost evasive uh, in the sense of if a record has a character, an atmosphere, that it's usually the element that's you know, not within your control. So it's either something you really like or you don't. Um, you know, certain rooms add certain characters, even just the way people play together uh, in the environment they're in, they could play differently each time. So I think that you don't really want to be like shooting yourself in the foot to say, well, I want to get it to sound this way. You have to be open to that element of the... Uh, atmosphere i guess part of what's fascinating to me about it is that it's very energetic um and you know again makes you wanna it, it you know there, there's there's music that you sort of stand and nod your head and music that kind of fills your body when i would put you guys in the latter category but it's also very crisp and very precise and you know there are a lot of bands that will play fast but it's not tight at the same time or it's not crisp and there's something about it, like you know just between you know dave with his you know percussion just being exact on there and and stan who's such a precise and powerful drummer and you know you guys are all you're very rhythmic players and and brenda too is melodic and and rhythmic that it's in one way very controlled and on the other way like it's exploding well we're all primarily i think uh motivated by the rhythm that, that's the sense i get at least we're all driven uh that's the one 
common element i think that we share and that because of that we're always really conscious but not overly conscious of locking into a a tight groove um you know it comes natural but there are times when when it's not happening we, we can tell and mm. we put some some work into it usually it's pretty effortless but it is something definitely uh, aware of the importance of the groove and and it's really all about the music your shows too i mean you're not someone who starts telling stories about like well this is how this one was written or just you know it's just sort of like you guys come out and you play the music and people just get sucked into it yeah to me there's nothing worse than telling a story in a song <laughs> why well, hate country music <laughs> when you were touring for the good earth and that album was out on coyote did you feel like oh now sort of things are happening with the feelies and that that was a good thing because you got signed to a&m after that i mean yeah we we kind of felt like we were achieving something you know another rung up the ladder i guess yeah you know we never really set goals like you know just speaking for myself like it's that wasn't appealing at all even now i like, prefer small club to a bigger place what was it like uh when you did get signed to a and m and did you did you feel like you had to compromise your approach on only life or were you happy with how that came out or both at the time i was happy with it in retrospect i don't like the production on that even though we co-produced it but uh, i think we were conscious of radio airplay because you know a lot of the bands that uh started you know we're playing the same places we were we're signing to major labels and getting radio airplay so it seemed like it didn't seem like a bad thing or a sellout. It seemed like we could do what we always did and still uh, go a little, little more commercial or be accepted by a bigger audience. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not like that album is like filled with weird synthesizers and gated drums and that sort of thing. Like it still sounds like a Feely's record. It's a little, it's a little um, maybe more polished sounding than what had come before it, but. Um, not not yeah, like sort of for me it's a little bit too much reverb on the snare which was everybody did that back then right that was the sound but stan it, loves that record because the drums are so loud so <laughs> i mean it's all subjective really and there are great songs on it yeah i mean we were pretty confident because we had done uh i think we did some demos and early on a and m kind of got back to us and said yeah you know you guys got some good songs keep going i think the first song i heard from that was too far gone because well it actually i think i think i saw you at the paradise in boston and you opened with the undertow and i was like oh this is a cool song i don't even know this one and then when i saw married to the mob um i remember the it's like i think it's just a very like over the end credits i was like oh what's this rock and feely song and it was too far gone and by then you'd also been in something wild which i just showed to my daughter recently how was how did you guys sort of get hooked up with jonathan demi and what was it like being in in something wild well on crazy rhythms we had uh our address on the record mailing address so he wrote us a note little letter uh saying he was a fan of the band and that he was a director at the time he had just directed 
Melvin and Howard, which is an excellent movie. And he uh, wanted to meet and he arranged for us. Actually, we weren't familiar with him at all at the time. We hadn't seen that movie. It had actually just come out. So he uh, arranged for us to like a, to get into uh, see a showing of that movie. And we liked it a lot. So the next step was to me, he suggested uh, actually talking about filming a concert movie. And he said, well, why don't we meet? I'll, he arranged for a private screening of The Last Waltz. So it was just Bill huh. and I and him watching The Last Waltz, occasionally, like, you know, whispering about things in the movie. But, you know, we thought it was kind of a cool idea. But then uh, he couldn't raise the money for it. And supposedly he went, one of the people he approached was uh, the manager of the Talking Heads. It's like, well, you know. I'll put up the money, but I want you to do with the talking heads. So we wind yeah. up doing that. Yeah, I was going to say, because Stop Making Sense was 84. So that would have been in that sort of period. Because then Something Wild was the movie he did after Stop Making Sense. Um, so, he, so he got you on screen anyway, but you didn't get your, your concert film. You could have worn a big suit. No, his idea was actually to have uh, us playing a show and then there'd be like zombies walking around and they would hear the music and be drawn to the sound and they would go into the venue and be rejuvenated and come alive and turn back so to normal it would be a concert film with rejuvenated zombies as your audience members yeah basically he wanted to call it night of the living feelings i remember hearing that title well he did That's work with roger corman so yeah i saw caged heat way back when it's a pretty strange idea though so he he did direct it's probably so, so, better as an idea than reality time for a witness came out and i don't think i was aware that that was coming out when um when it did and that album just kind of jumps out of the speakers uh, did you, was that sort of a conscious attempt? It's another your second album for AM, but sort of a much more sort of loud, fast record. Did you go into that thinking, okay, this is what we want to do? You know, we want to capture that live energy this time? Well, yeah, that's kind of suited the songs. I remember uh, Neil Young's Ragged Glory, I think, was out at that time. That right. Being really into that record. You know, again, it was kind of a return to that early feelies garage kind of sound, you know, Stooges were a big influence on us. So, right. And you kind uh, you covered, uh, you know, the Stooges for the last song on the album. Yeah. Had, was it was a songwriting for you and the dynamic with you and Bill, was it the same from album to album or did it change? Each record is a little bit different. The process is pretty similar, but, I mean, there's really, I think only one or two songs we actually sat together across from each other and kind of worked out. I think it was the first two songs we worked on. And then it's sort of, uh, you know, work on our own and kind of combine what we have. Are you talking about the first two songs for Time for Witness or just in general? 
No, the first two uh, in Crazy Rhythms. I think it was Original Love, and that's the only one I could think of that was written that way. Or like Moscow Nights or Fasse La, which was which you'd recorded a few different times before then. They didn't evolve that much. They would sound different depending on who was drumming on it, but the arrangements were pretty. Once we had them set, they pretty much stayed the same. So for Time for a Witness, when you get to the end of an album, you know whether it's that or the previous ones, do you have this feeling of, oh, that came out well? Uh, I only remember Crazy Rhythms sitting back after we were done and they had a little listening room with like huge, giant speakers. and Just, uh, you know, we worked so hard on that record and just being like, yeah, I wouldn't change a thing. And then other times when you're done, you just don't want to, you know... Your perspective is like, so you can't even judge it at that point. I mean, always are satisfied, but not to the point where, you know, we say like, yeah, we really nailed it. I think the last one, we kind of had that feeling. In between? Yeah. I think the, the more effort you put into it, the more time you spend on it, then the more rewarding it seems when it comes out the way you wanted yeah the good earth when i listen to that i'm like i really wish we had turned the vocals up you know everybody said how cool that was that they're buried but to, to me like we do the songs now and they just take on a different you know energy i guess and then uh like i said about the loud reverb drums and only life Right. Yeah, the, vocals, the vocals are more up in Lonely Life compared to Good Earth, where they are buried. But then you also have your louder drums on it. It's like I said, it's all subjective, really. The things that I don't like, other people, that's their favorite thing. So, how do you look back on Time for a Witness? If I listen to it, that I'd really find a lot I'd want to change. It's more like thinking about the making of the record, really, that stands out more than. The result to me the process is always much more important i guess than the result what what stood out about that process nothing particularly good you know a lot of angst which the record kind of needed i guess was that angst among the bandmates or angst between you and the label or just angst about career and life uh maybe a little bit of all that i mean there's always a lot of angst on our records I'm a nervous person. I'm very uh, high strung. Do you get joy out of recording or is it really sort of an ordeal until you're done with it? Uh, I love to record. Uh, there have been times when it's been harder than it should be. That's not pleasant, but you know, every endeavor has moments of struggle. But Time for a Witness felt more fraught than the previous records? Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Only Life was very optimistic. We just signed to a major label and things were going well. And then by the time Time for Witness was sort of the end of the band, we broke up right after that. So, was, you know. Did you did you know or feel like you were going to break up at that point? Or was that just something that happened afterwards? Not while we were recording it. I don't think we would have recorded it if we knew we were going to break up. No, and I saw you at the, see, by then I'd moved back to Chicago. I saw you guys at the Vic playing that show. Um, and I think XRT, the you know station here, uh, had, I think they even recorded it because I think I, I, I was there for it and I think I got to hear it on the radio sometime later. Yeah, I think it might have been bootlegged. I think I might have had a copy at some point too. 
sounded good. I remember, I remember being impressed that sooner or later was even faster live than it is on the record. And it's pretty fast on the record. Everything we do is live is faster than the record. Pretty much. Do you feel like you still try to speed everything up or maybe not quite as much? No, we're much more conscious of trying to match the records. You know, we listen uh, for me. I listened to live tapes from back then. It's just, oh, I can't stand it. <laughs> they sound uncomfortable. They're not playing that fast. Really doesn't suit the songs to me. But it then, was, you know, when you're doing it, it you live. It was fun to be there, though. It was it was fun well, to be in the middle of it. It was fun for me to perform. I never thought while we were playing that oh, this is too fast. It just you get caught up with the adrenaline and the crowd. But as far as a recording, you know, making a document of it, it just doesn't sound right. So, so what caused you guys to break up at that point after you toured for that record? Well, a big factor was that A and M. Uh, well, the people that we knew and had established a relationship with had left the company when they got bought out by Phonogram, I think it was. So, uh, you know, the new people coming in didn't feel the same way about the band. I think the way they left it with us was well, we'll still put out the records, but we don't want to put a lot of money into tour support promotion. Almost like suggesting, oh, it's time for you guys to leave. And it was a weird label. They had the Mekons at the same time. They put out Mekons Rock and Roll in 89, which in my mind is a pretty fantastic record. And then they're like, yep, you're off. We, we don't even want to promote you anymore. Um so I don't know. I don't know what was happening there. There was someone with good taste was signing bands, but then they weren't giving you whatever support you guys deserved. I see it more as them being bought out by a conglomerate. Well, there's that too. Yeah. But, but them being bought out by a conglomerate doesn't mean you guys had to break up. Was it, did you just sort of feel like, Oh, this is the end of the line for us? Were you just too discouraged or frustrated by all the business parts of it? Or musically, did you also feel like we need a break at this point? It was a lot of stuff, you know, nothing worth dwelling on. I think we all felt like we'd done what we wanted. You know, it just had, each band, they have a lifespan. You were doing Wake Ulu, uh, which Chicago's Pravda was, uh, I think they were putting out. What was the feeling of sort of putting that band together? So that was you and Dave. Uh, yeah, was that was actually a few years after the Feelies uh, stopped playing. I guess to because of the way the feelies ended, it was to try to do something more. I guess along the way uh, the tripes had been, which was basically to play music, try to have a good time, keep it more like a social kind of thing, and it actually did start that way. I had reconnected with a childhood friend, Russ Gambino, played keyboard in the band. He had just moved back to town, and I was mowing my parents lawn and he drove by and stopped and we talked and we uh decided to play and we were just doing covers me russ and dave as a trio russ played keyboard bass and then at the same time a friend of mine who uh was thinking of relocating to new jersey we worked on some of his stuff and some of my songs so we were going to do a band with him and then at some point we kind of combined the two things and tried that and uh figured we'd you know give it a shot it was a lot of work yeah i remember that had the, like this really sort of great raw energy to it yeah it was sort of like where we left from uh time for witness that garage 
Right. You know, so it's sort of continuing in that vein. And your songwriting is your songwriting, whether it's for the Feelies or whether it's for Wakeulu or later for solo projects, but there's sort of a continuum to what you're doing, or did you ever consciously sort of try to do something with a different approach? Semi-consciously, I guess. Um, you know, it's different because it's one guitar and a right. keyboard. So uh, it's sort of, sort of having a vaguely uh, defined parameter. You don't want to get too uh, fine-tuned with your definition of what you want. You want to leave it fluid a little bit. You know, leave that organic element of letting things take their natural course. Right. Did you did you enjoy doing that at that point? You know, being in that band and putting out those records. Well, I liked continuing with the music. I didn't want to stop, so that was very rewarding to be able to keep playing. Uh, we did a couple trips out to Chicago in the summer, right. um, but it, like I said, it was really hard. It was like starting over a lot. Was, uh, with the Feelies, we had been touring in a motorhome and uh, had a pretty big crew. So this was like just the band. We had a sound guy and in a van, real long drives between shows, very little money. I've heard that you're not a big fan of traveling around also. That's true. I, I mean, I don't mind playing in different places, but the travel, it's, uh, I find it harder and harder, to be honest. Just that it's being sedentary for that long, sitting in a van, this is like... You did the Millennium Park show uh, when uh, you were you were coming back with Here Before. I think it was before Here Before came out, actually. It was probably like a year before that. And then you were back here for Pitchfork. But those were both these kind of outdoor shows and not the sort of long, classic feelies, two sets kind of evenings. Sorry. <laughs> um, I actually have uh, some uh, hearing issues. And um, the last time I... Flew was actually for that Millennium Park show. And it was a pretty bad experience for me because when we landed, my ear was totally closed up. Oh, wow. And I have one ear that I have tinnitus and very severe uh, hearing loss. And the other ear, my I call good ear, which isn't that good anymore, was totally closed up. So it was like being in some weird vacuum Things just sounded really bad. But luckily, we had flown in the night before, and I woke up the next morning. It was okay. It, it like, leveled off. But then flying back, the same thing happened. Oh, man. And we had a show at Maxwell's, and it didn't open back up, and I had to play the whole show. It was like playing in a closet in another room or something. So that's the last time you were on a plane. Yeah. And I get that now, even, like, uh in a car up and down a hill, my ears constantly closing up. Yeah. Once you get out to the Midwest, you don't have to worry about it because it's so flat. But so when you played Pitchfork, um, you guys just drove out here. And then I think you would like a show in Detroit, like the next night or something. Right. Yeah. I was jealous because I looked at their set list and it was longer, but it was great seeing you at Pitchfork too. We had to cut a song, I think. They cut our set because... Oh, someone else went too long at, yeah. the, at the other stage. I remember that. I was getting yeah. pissed off. But I also had... I expect that at a festival. Yeah, I guess. No, I remember you guys were kind of looking over there. I think I was yelling for you guys to just keep playing. <laughs> but um, no, and I remember there was a, there was a high road uh, cider that Virtue Cider had in the, the VIP area just for you guys because Greg Hall of Virtue is a big Feelies fan too. 
So backing up from that, you'd done Wheels in Motion, which was your solo album. And and you kind of have everyone from the Feelies on it except for Bill. But you weren't gonna you weren't gonna call something a Feelies record if he wasn't on it, right? Right. But if he had been on it, would you would those have been the same songs that would have been it just would have been a Feelies record? Uh no, I think we would have to collaborate on songs for it to be a Feelies record. My wish was to have him as well, but him being in Florida, really, I think now might be a little more possible with the internet and sharing files and recordings and stuff. I've done that with people. Uh, actually, it's pretty easy. So what was it that got him finally to sort of come back into the fold? Because I was excited when, when you guys started playing together again. I don't really know. I mean, we talked about it for a while. We had an offer to do this show and bill just said yeah more timing than the particulars of the the gig it was opening for sonic youth at uh in new york outdoor show we actually did warm-up uh at maxwell's before we did the sonic youth show when you all got back together, did you feel like the same angst was in the air or was it a sort of different world or wiser and more relaxed now? Oh, it was, it was different. Yeah, it was. Well, that was in the past. In between sounds like it's it's almost like a follow up to the good earth and that it's a little more kind of acoustic. And and then here before sounds like just, you know, just kind of everything you like about the feelies and, you know, different ways. Well, I like that they were different. You know, we want each one to kind of like here before was done primarily at a studio although i did some work here and we uh combined that but in between we did right here in this room as a matter of fact most of it is that your basement yeah but that you know that would turn out to be really hard work yeah in between is a very kind of unified sound to it which i i think you're talking a little bit before but um it uh it definitely sort of casts a spell that it sort of holds for like the whole record yeah we were trying to you know have an atmosphere to it i mean we try to do that for every record really now are you still writing songs like are you someone who writes songs all the time or are you someone who writes songs more when you know there's a project that you need to do a little bit of both i i've written a lot when i'm not trying to write when i'm just playing guitar but then when there's a bulk of songs that need more to kind of move it toward being an album, you know, self-imposed deadline kind of thing, then, uh, so, so yeah, a little bit of both really. Was the whole pandemic, you know, lockdown, isolation kind of thing, good or bad for your creativity? It, I didn't do it. Yeah, it was such a big distraction it's still it's still i don't think i've recovered from it yeah I, I think that's true of a lot of us do you are do you have a new feelies album that you're working on you know either writing or planning to record uh well i've written songs um to be honest i don't know do you don't know whether the songs would fit on an album or whether you just want to do an album it just doesn't seem like the last one was so much work, to be honest with you. My hearing is so much worse than it was from then. I don't know if it's really that important. I don't know. Are people buying records? Records seem kind of... Well, vinyl's back now. 
I saw Newberry Comics had colored vinyl versions of Crazy Rhythms and uh, The Good Earth. Um, you know, I see uh, well, vinyl of thing. the other it's records like, coming out. Is that really driving the music business? I don't know. It's like a lot of people buy records and they never even open them. They're like souvenirs. I don't know. I think, you know, like when I was at that show in, in Jersey City, I picked up some vinyl because something like Time for a Witness came out in 91 when everything was on CD. And I, unlike, you know, the previous two, I'd never owned that one on vinyl. And it's like, oh, my turntable sounds better than my CD player now. So I should have a version of that. So, yeah, the, the sort of like your, your sort of 42 minute album is is kind of back as a form as opposed to the 70 minute CD. Not that I'm trying to twist your arm plant, and make a new Furies album. The pressing plants are so far behind. you got to plan that's true. Like at least a year in advance. And it's like you record something, then wait a year and put a record out. And it's like... Right. Yeah. Or like momentum. Wilco, Wilco, yeah. Wilco now put it out, you know, digitally. And they're like, the, the vinyl will come eventually. But, but look, but these things are cyclical, though. I mean, hopefully people will build more pressing plants because there's more demand for quality vinyl so it's we'll still see. fossil fuel based yeah well it would be fun to hear a new i i would not demand of an artist you need to give more because i i really love the albums that i have already um but you know i would i wouldn't discourage you from making a new album are you going to keep playing shows you'll do some of the new york area you'll maybe go up to boston or down to dc or philly or something do you see keeping to that schedule for a while or is there some end to that insight as well uh i see the end to be honest i mean we do we are trying to book show in boston and dc but i don't know uh, uh it's just hard to travel for me well, would you keep doing the shows in the you know new york new jersey area it really is not up to me i mean i, I still enjoy playing i still would want to play you guys play these really long shows, which is great. You'll do, you'll do a set and then you'll take a break and then you'll do another set and then you'll do all these encores with all these great covers in them. Is that something that's sort of physically harder after a while or, or is it just sort of like, this is what we do and you guys are good with it? It, it hasn't been, it's been, uh, I, I don't feel that uh, challenged by it. Although uh, I had COVID recently and, found um still i don't know maybe feel like and i've done a few shows with another band since then and um i don't know if it was from having some time off but i just felt i mean like 90 percent back but yeah it was a little more challenging there's a there's a lot I'm of starting to have some issues with my hand and um, huh. you know we'll see with these shows coming up but the what last is- ones we played the they weren't difficult at all you know when you when you get back together do you have to rehearse or is it pretty much like everyone knows you you all know what you're doing and you're playing on your own and you put yourselves together and it's off to the races we we do rehearse yeah we don't rehearse a lot you know obviously with bill being in florida and brendan pennsylvania but we always rehearse before performance and if there's a long break we'll schedule a rehearsal some point during that break we all realize that we have to do work on our own too so it's not only when we're rehearsing with the band it's we all do a lot of playing on our own 
Like, will you set out, send out the playlist ahead of time and say, look, these are the songs I want to do? No, we have a hard time even half hour before showtime getting the songs picked. So we, we've talked about getting sets worked out in advance, but really never do it. At what point do you decide what songs to cover and sort of what's the key to, you know, a great feelies cover? Well, the key is we all have to like the song. could be anything. We really could pick from anything, really. We've uh, actually, the Willies did a Kraftwerk song, so the Feelies have been doing that. So, I mean, we pick from anything, you know. Yeah, I'd heard you do The Doors, uh, Take It As It Comes, but then last time you did, you were doing Strange Days. Um, yeah, we generally try to, um, every year or every group of shows, we'll try to come up with a new cover just to make it interesting for ourselves, too. And when you cover them, it's always like, this is the feelies version of that. It's always fun and often surprising if you don't know what's coming up that uh, you guys have your take on it. And it always kind of lights a little fire under the song and makes you think differently about both. I don't know if we're talented enough to recreate songs exactly, but we really wouldn't have that desire anyway. You know, it's always when I see a band cover a song, I want them to do something with it. Well, and, and as I said at the beginning of this conversation, the feelies have such a distinct sound with, you know, the percussion, the way the percussion and the drums work together, the way the two guitars work together, the way, you know, the way all of the elements, you know, the bass, everything, it's just, it's the feelies. And I don't know of anyone who sounds just like it. I've heard bands that I think, oh, they were influenced by you, but I've never heard something that I thought, oh, that's, that like occupies the same or even a similar space. Do you feel that way? I think every band's like that. It's the, the combination of the people playing the music that creates something unique. If you don't get that, that's because it's been produced out. You know, the personality of the people playing gets diminished or wiped away by the process. So it's, I think, from us producing ourselves, we allow the process to allow the personalities of the players to come through. And you also have a distinct vision. I mean, there are a lot of bands out there and there are a lot of bands that I love, um, but but not every band has such a precise way that they want to present what they're doing and the way they want to approach their their music. And it's not to say that everything's the same. It's just that there's there's a, again, sort of a crispness or precision to, you know, like the way you approach it where, you know, there are a lot of, you know, two guitar-based drums bands and you know, the arrangements don't have that kind of, you know, relationship that yours do. I, mean, I think it's different. trying to balance out the conceptual side where you think about the music a lot with the side where you're not thinking and it's passive and, you know, it's juggling those two uh, extremes, really. When are you happiest in regards to music? Is it when you're on stage? Is it when you've just made up a song? Is it when you're recording? Like, what is, what are those moments when you feel kind of elevated the most? You know, there's nothing like a crowd just being so into the song and seeing people singing along and smiling. And But then there's been moments where it's just been musicians playing together with no audience. And there's astounding moments that happen then. You know, because there's no ego involved. You're not, 
expecting a reaction. You're not doing it for uh, your motive is purely it's pure in the sense that, you know, you just want to create the music. You're not entertaining someone or uh, trying to get a reaction. So when those happen, that's pretty remarkable because, you know, it's totally unexpected and uh, unplanned and, you know, just flashes of interaction of people playing that you realize, uh, hey, this is, this is special. That's great. I want to thank you because I've, I've had a lot of magical moments listening and seeing the feelies and it's a real treat for me to get to talk to you uh, for this. So well, thank you so much for having me. That's all for episode 48 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Glenn Mercer for sharing so many great insights and stories about the feelies and beyond. If you don't own the feelies catalog, you should. Barnon Records has released all six Feelies albums, plus the Young Woo side project on vinyl and CD. Start with Crazy Rhythms and The Good Earth, because you really can't have one without the other, and move forward from there. And look to thefeeliesweb.com for announcements about upcoming shows. Those usually happen on the East Coast and are worth traveling for. You also should seek out Mercer's two solo albums and his Wake Ulu output on Chicago's Pravda Records. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who always takes the high road when he says, let's go. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. And visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.